Support for this podcast comes from Frito-Lay in the 2023 Snack Bracket Championship. The Frito-Lay Snacket Challenge is underway, and fans are voting on their favorite snacks to crown champion. We're talking about primetime matchups between the best 64 snacks in the land. Will Ruffles Ridges reign supreme? Can Doritos defend their dynasty? Or will Smart Food use their smarts for a surprise upset? Only you can decide. Get in on all the action for a chance to win up to $1,000 or a year's worth of snacks. Let your snacks be heard. Just go to Frito-LaySnackIt.SBNation.com to vote and enter for a chance to win. No purchase necessary. Sweepstakes ends April 3rd, 2023. Void but prohibited. Years worth of snacks awarded in the form of 52 coupons, each good for one bag of chips. See official rules at Frito-LaySnackIt.SBNation.com. You're listening to Alamo City Limits Podcast with Noah McGarrow-George, the official San Antonio Spurs podcast of Pounding the Rock in SB Nation. What's going on, Spurs fans? Welcome back to Alamo City Limits, the official San Antonio Spurs podcast of SB Nation and Pounding the Rock. As always, I'm your host, Noah McGarrow-George, and that's my co-host, Damian Bartonek. We got a nice little two-week vacation because of the All-Star festivities, but we're back at it once again Dame, how are you doing today, man? Man, I'm doing very well, brother. It's been a, it's been a long time. It's been two, so it feels like two years, man. So <laughs> I'm excited uh, to talk some Spurs hoops with you. I hope the listeners are excited. I'm honestly really thrilled to get into our first topic, bro. I think me and you, we're not, we haven't been, you know, very, very rough on him. I wouldn't say that. Just kind of, just very, just objective and honest. And sometimes the truth kind of really can hurt a little bit. But now it seems like the truth's gonna help a little bit. That's gonna feel good. So uh, let's get into it, bro. I'm excited. Yeah, and just so our listeners know, we're recording this podcast on Friday at March 4th at about noon central time, but let's go ahead and hop right into the topics for today. The Silver and Black have finally returned from their rodeo road trip, and we saw a pretty shocking breakthrough from one Lonnie Walker the fourth. after, honestly, let's, let's, let's be honest here, it was a rough, rough start to the season. But we've seen the fourth-year guard average 21.7 points per game over his last seven outings. He hasn't scored less than 17 in any of those games. That's the longest streak of his career. So I have to ask you, has Lonnie finally turned the corner with the San Antonio (laughs) Spurs? And if so, Dame, should Pop at the front office look to retain his services offseason? But let's start with that first question. Okay, so in terms of him turning the corner... I want to say yes. I want to say turning the corner from being a player that respectfully I couldn't see really playing at an NBA level in another system. If he can't work within the system that the Spurs have, which is really designed and molded to kind of specific player skill set, even to a fault sometimes, I was really worried, like, where is he going to fit in the NBA? Well, right now he's looking like an NBA player. He's looking like a really solid bench player rotational piece. And like you mentioned, man, the 21.7 points is cool. The shooting, all that's cool. But I think me and you will agree, like, just his overall comfort and feel out there, you can just tell it's actually coming to him so much easier. And that was the biggest thing for me from the jump. You can go back to our podcast earlier in the year when I'm talking about, man, yeah, Lonnie could average 14, 5, and 5. But I think I want him to see, I want to see him carve out a role for himself. I want to see him actually produce on a consistent basis in a specific role because he kind of really hasn't had that. Well, now we're seeing it, and he's looking really good. In terms of, you know, his services and stuff like that, I'm not too sure about how much money I would be, quote-unquote, willing to pay if I was the GM. But I will say this. I don't know if I would be willing to 
make a long-term commitment in terms of like three, four, or you know, four years or whatever like that. But I think on a two-year deal, it would still be, you know, it would still be understandable to do that. And I know from his perspective, it probably isn't. But I mean, we have probably three years of some pretty, you know, respectfully up and down tape, <laughs> if you want to put it like yeah. that. <laughs> and um, I don't know if these last seven outings are, are, you know, would make me as a GM say, I'm going to shell out four years, fifty million for this guy when I have three years of tape that really leaves you scratching your head so that's just kind of how i see it Noah. i'd love to hear your opinion on it yeah i think if he keeps playing like this and i think that's the key keeps playing like this then you absolutely have to bring him back for the right price now i don't know how much the right price is you it sounds like you don't really know and that's fine as well like figuring out what you need to pay lonnie that that can be done by general manager brian right we don't have to figure that out that's going to be his problem and that's a great problem to have Like, instead of knowing that, okay, this is a guy we don't want to be here, that's just one less decision to make, now we know that they're going to have to consider bringing him back. So that's a good thing for Spurs fans. You should be happy if you're a Spurs fan. But I look at this whole sequence of games from Lonnie. He looks more aggressive. He looks more decisive. He's getting to the free throw line nearly three times per game. You know, instead of skying and adjusting, avoiding contact. He's abrasing contact. He's being physical. He's taking it to defenders. He's going into people's chests. Is he still, you know, double clutching when he's midair? Yeah. And so some of this worries me. You know, I, I want to walk you through some of these numbers that I have in front of me. Last seven games in the restricted area, so at the rim, 84.6%. He's shooting 84.6% Dame. If I asked you right now, we're going to do a little trivia. Yeah, we, we know you Which love that. Which NBA All-Stars are shooting 84.6% or better at the rim? How many would you say? I'd probably say like five. None. Even that. No yeah. one, no one yeah, is. Very little. No yeah. one is. So <laughs> that's what gives me a, a, a cause for pause, right? Because it's not sustainable. No one's going to shoot 84.6% at the rim for an entire season. Mitchell Robinson a few years ago set the NBA record for the highest field goal percentage in NBA history. And even he only shot 76% at the rim. So this is not sustainable at the rim. In the paint, he's shooting 63.6%. For his career, he shoots 37.3%. So that's also probably not sustainable. The league leader this season is only shooting about 54% inside the paint. So again, just another reason for me to go, is this sustainable? I don't know. The two things that do make me think at least part of this is sustainable. Mid-range shooting, 42.4%. He's been a little bit below league average for his career. League average is about 39.1%. For his career, it's 37.3%. And right now, he's shooting 42.4%. So that feels like if he can continue to be aggressive, make smart decisions with the ball, take good shots. You know, don't don't take those contested mid-range jumpers. Create some space off the dribble. Shoot them if it's there. You know, move on if it's not. I think that's sustainable. And the last one, the three-point percentage, he's shooting 40% from three. He was labeled as a 3 and D player at minimum coming out of Miami. I think if he can continue to shoot, because he is a career 35% three-point shooter, I think he can maintain this. Like, his his shot has always looked good. It just hasn't gone in. So I'm not saying he's going to shoot 40% from three for the rest of the year, but those other elements seem sustainable. He's not turning the ball over very much. He's getting to the line more. We've seen a definite change in his attitude. So cause for pause in some areas, but encouraged by the growth in others. And I think when you look at this, and I'd love to get your opinion on this. Derek White being traded to create space for Lonnie Walker to thrive, that's what led to everything. That's what led to everything. And I, and I was scared because that first game in Atlanta, right after he was traded, 
Lonnie only went for two points in 13 minutes, 0 of 3 from the floor. And I thought, oh my God, we're getting the same old Lonnie. And then after that, you know, like I mentioned, at least 17 points in every single game, including a season-high 30 against Sacramento, granted in a pretty bad loss last night. But, man, I just I need to get your opinion on what has led to this change for Lonnie. And do you think it's sustainable? I don't know that it is. It, some of it is, but I don't know if all of it is. Yeah, so some of it, some of it definitely is like the restricted area stuff, the stuff in the paint. I'm I'm sure it's gonna you know come down a little bit as well. In terms of like the mid range or the three point percentage, uh, particularly the three point percentage, I think I don't know if he's gonna be a forty percent career shooter from here on out, but I definitely think he's a guy that can definitely be a thirty eight percent shooter without a doubt. I mean, I remember if it was not last year or the year before, he was in that like thirty seven, thirty eight, thirty nine percent catch and shoot three point range anyway. So I think the, the three point shooting in particular is probably sustainable. In terms of his role, though, it's really interesting. I don't know who put the quote out there that basically said that, like, with you know, that Derek did a lot for him and he recognizes that. But moving on from Derek created opportunities for him, Vassell, and Primo. It was something along the lines of that. And that really spoke to me, Noah. And it spoke to me because that kind of shows you that he really didn't know his role on a night to night basis. He had yeah. no confidence, no comfort on a game-to-game basis, he didn't know what was going to happen, what was going to come his way. And granted, here's here's a sidebar to that. Okay, so he's obviously not a player that can, whatever comes at him on a night-to-night basis, he probably isn't going to do really, very well, right? He He's someone that, within structure, has to work really, really well. That's kind of his deal. If you have a structured offense, structured system around him, and a, and a clear and defined role, he's going to be great. So that kind of proves to me he's a rotational player, he's a bench piece, which is fine. But that's what we needed, or we in terms of like, I'm speaking for Lonnie here. That's what he needed, right? Like, <laughs> he needed that defined role. And this is something, Noah, like, we said it so much coming into the year. That was the number one most important thing. And so I think that's, you know, the Derek trade really kind of created that role for him. And shout out to a, a friend of the show, All Day Sport Talk, for really mentioning that, too. He said that uh, that he was that Lonnie was hurt by never having that defined role, never having that clear-cut, you know, opportunity on a night-to-night basis, didn't really know what he was doing. So I think you should really be encouraged with where Lonnie's at right now and where he's going. One last thing. You mentioned that he's double clutching in midair and such like that. I see that too. I still see that as well. The thing for me is, is if he's able to still embrace content and get to the line, that's fine. But if you're going to be double clutching and trying to, you know, move around, you, if you can maneuver in midair and stuff like that, I mean, it's difficult. You can try it. There's some people who are good at it, right? Cause you obviously you got to maneuver through contact and stuff like that. But I think, him getting to the line is also a really encouraging sign, something that me and you have talked about that the Spurs in general need to do more of. So, yeah, I think I think for, for once in this podcast history, man, I'm actually really excited to watch Lonnie Walker play hoops, you know, for the remainder of the year. And, hey, who knows what happens after this season, right? And if I had to be a little bit nitpicky, I'm really glad he's getting to the line three times per game. But he's only shooting 57.1% at the line. <laughs> and, like, he missed a pretty big free throw last night against Sacramento. He went three for six against Washington. He went one for four against Chicago. Like, I don't under, like, it's so weird. Usually, like, free throw shooting is a pretty good indicator of, like, how well you'll be shooting at the time, right? So, like, usually good shooters shoot really well from the free throw line. And Lonnie's shooting so bad from the free throw line, but like anywhere else, live game situation, guys guarding him, he's shooting like almost the same percentage. So it's, it's insane. Like, I I don't know if we mentioned this. I know we talked about specifics about like the different areas in which he shot from, but like from the field overall, 53% from the field, like that's 
insane. I don't know that he's going to keep this up, but I'm really happy to see him turn a corner. It's it's one of those situations that I think sometimes fans get it twisted and they think, oh, we, you know, you're being a hater. But, you know, we, we just take what's given to us. We're analyzing what's in front of us. And right now what's in front of us, it looks really nice. Really happy for Lonnie. I'm rooting for every single one of these guys every single night. Nobody wants to cover a team that isn't fun, where players are struggling, and the fact that he's hitting his stride, especially on a road trip, an extended road trip, exactly. that was huge. And then he had his best performance to date when they came home. It makes me wonder what's left in store. Yeah, Like, he could continue this for the rest of the season. I don't know if it's like a career-long thing, but it makes you confident that, hey, like this guy is figuring it out. Now, there have been stretches where you're like, okay, you know, he disappeared. He disappeared a little bit against Sacramento after scoring 22 points in the first half. But, you know, without those 30 points from Lonnie, they're not even in that game. Like, they, respectfully, they are not in that game without him. So, really proud of Lonnie. I think we should move on to this next guy. And everyone knows, you know this, <laughs> I, I know this, most of our listeners know this. Trey Jones is my guy. But I'm thinking... This guy has been really good as of late. I know that he's getting some flack from fans. People have said, you know, he, he doesn't deserve to be in here. He, he shouldn't be playing. But it's easy to forget he's a second rounder, right? 41st overall pick. It seems that he's finally carving out a consistent role for Greg Popovich as a backup. He's had some impressive stints as a spot starter. And I think that the Silver and Black may have found their backup point guard of the future. So I'll ask you these two questions. Is he actually the backup point guard of the future for the Spurs? And will he become San Antonio's first second-round pick to earn a second contract with the team since Manu Ginobili? Trey Jones is one of the most interesting players on this roster, man. Watching him play is so interesting to me because there are times, like you mentioned, like the spot started performances, 15.7 rebounds, 3 assists, shoot 60% from the floor. 15-9-3 against Phoenix, 58.3% shooting. You know, even at Miami, 19 points, 11, assists, 11 uh, assists, 6 rebounds, 69% shooting from the field. Noah, that that is very, very good production from a second-round pick in a spot starter like, you know, situation. Like, I don't know how many second-round guards, second-round picks, you know, really come out and do that for a team. I mean, like, you know, the Oklahoma City Thunder, for example, Teo Maladon. I don't think Teo Maladon can do that for the Thunder if they needed him to right now, right? I don't think what what we're seeing from this guy is a is a player that, you know, hey, I don't think he should be on the floor. Or, hey, I, you know, he's not worthy of these minutes or this, that, and the third. Nah, man, Trey Jones has a little bit of potential there. And especially, you know, me and you have mentioned this before, how they need that kind of facilitating guard, someone that can just really be that 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 on the second unit, be that guy that can really make that offense have some structure, really kind of pass some guys open here and there. Even though his pick-and-roll ball handler numbers aren't the best right now, he's in the 58th percentile among uh, pick-and-roll ball handlers. It's still encouraging because this guy definitely shows potential more than, you know, Quindary Weatherspoon did in the past or anything like that. So I think right now with Trey Jones, Noah, you know, your your favorite player in, in the history of the NBA, <laughs> I actually do think that I wouldn't I wouldn't be opposed to, you know, them re-signing him or, you know, doing whatever the case may be with him because he looks like he's a solid player. I mean, if they can upgrade, you know, in the second round or, or something like that, sure. But I don't think it's a pressing issue, a, a real big need for the Spurs to find a backup one because I think they could have it right here. Definitely. And, and he's averaging eight points per game, four assists per game in February, like since February began. And he's shooting 57.4%. And really, that's kind of on par with his season numbers. Now, like, obviously, he's not averaging eight and four for the season. But the, the efficiency, the assist to turnover ratio, the assist ratio or rate, rather, like that, that's all on par with what he's been doing. 
and he's just doing it in a bigger role now. So I really believe in Trey Jones. I know that there are reasons not to believe in him. Is he small? Yes. He's an excellent point of attack defender. He's really going to get after his guy, you know, in the pick and roll, but he's small. You know, if he gets switched on to anybody, it's not going to go well for him usually. He, he can try his best, but he's kind of a victim of what Bryn Forbes was a victim of is no matter how hard you try, you're just too small. It's not really your fault. You know, he's putting effort out there, but, you know, he's kind of a turnstile on defense, not any fault of his own. Now, is he a good three-point shooter? No, he's not a good three-point shooter, and he's not really a willing three-point shooter either. And if he can develop that like his brother Tyus Jones, then it can go a long way. You know, we've seen Tyus Jones be really excellent for the Memphis Grizzlies, one of the best backup point guards in the NBA. And there's even talk about, you know, teams are interested bringing him this summer as a starter. Now, I don't know if Trey is ever going to be a starter, but I love him as a backup. And just looking at some of the things, and one thing that really impresses me, there are over 100 point guards in the NBA right now of every player. So there's more than 550 players who have played a minute in the NBA this season. He has the fourth best assist to turnover, assist to turnover ratio in the <laughs> NBA. 4.4 assists to one turnover. That's behind only Chris Paul, Tyus Jones, Jordan McLaughlin. That's it. That's it. So it's not that he's the most dynamic playmaker. He's sort of like... DeJounte in that respect where he sort of just goes through basic reads he's going to hit guys who are open he's not really going to pass you open but you know what that's fine that's all you need out of a backup you don't need him to be an all-star you don't need him to be a starter you don't need him to score you know 12 points 13 points off the bench he is just a steady presence he's not going to make mistakes he's going to do what you ask of him and he's going to play within his role so I'm really happy with Trey I don't know if he has like a higher ceiling or another level to get to really but I really love Trey. You know that. I love Trey Jones. Yeah. Well, another thing, too, is uh, I was looking here on Basketball Reference, and from zero to three feet out, he's 64% from, from the floor, basically, which is – that's really impressive, especially for a guy that's relatively undersized. I mean, he's 6'1", 185. Uh, I was looking at some other numbers from, like, Corey Joseph back in the day, just kind of seeing how he looked at as a backup point guard. And, I mean, Trey Jones, I think, could fill a role of Corey Joseph where it's 6.8 points, 2.4 assists, 2.4 boards. Like, very simple, basic, 18 minutes a night. And we're talking again, like you mentioned, Noah, we're talking about a backup point guard here, right? We're not talking about Trey Jones being John Morant or something like that, or Trey Young, right? We're talking about Trey Jones. So I think right now, you have every right to be encouraged. I think if if they do do something and they end up resigning and bringing him back, I mean, I don't see the fault in that, honestly. And quite frankly, Noah, I'm I'm ready to get into the next topic whenever you are too, man, because I think this is a really good one as well. Yeah, whenever you, you you're can, ready. No, you, you can take yeah. us in, into the next topic for sure. I think we've said everything that we can say about Trey Jones, about Lonnie Walker. Really proud of those guys. But this next topic, I think it's going to be a lot of fun. Yeah, so basically right now, guys, Keldon Johnson, over the last two games, Keldon Johnson is shooting 5 of 21 from the field, 1 of 10 from 3, with more fouls and turnovers than he does assists, steals, and blocks. Is there anything to worry about? Kel uh, is there anything to worry about with Kelvin Johnson right now, or is this just a typical downstretch of downstretch of hoops from the Spurs for Noah? I gotta know because it's not looking too good right now. Yeah, I don't. I don't really know how to read this situation. I'm even like going beyond just these last two games. You know, he hasn't been great. Now I know that's weird to say because he had a 32 point performance mixed in there. He also had 22 points. I believe, against OKC. You can correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm pretty sure he had 22 against OKC in that win that they really needed him. Like, he showed up. But over his last six games, shooting 40% from the field, 27.3% from three, 
and he's not really playmaking for others. He's not really scoring at a particularly high rate. Like those two games that he had a lot of points that really inflated his numbers. Now, I don't know if I'm really like worried about Keldon Johnson, but I think he is going into a shooting slump right now. Now, I don't, I don't, I don't want to say like I told you so because that's that feels mean. Like I'm not talking to you specifically. I'm just kind of talking to the fan base at large. At the beginning of the season, when he was shooting 17% from three, I said that that's not going to happen. You know, he's not going to shoot 17% all year. He's too good of a shooter. He'll figure things out. Well, not only did he figure things out, but he ended up shooting nearly 55% from three for a two-month stretch. And when that happened, I said, look, he's also not that good of a three-point shooter. That's not going to sustain. And people were like, oh, well, that's ridiculous. Like, clearly he's an elite standstill shooter, blah, blah, blah. And yeah, he has become a really, really good standstill shooter. But this is the problem with Keldon, I think, is I don't know that the consistency is always there. And like we've talked about it, the, the loading time on the shot is kind of slow. He's still got a very high arc. And at a certain point, like arc on your shot is good, but at a certain point, it's too much. And it makes the percentage of that shot going in even lower. So I don't know if I believe in Kellen Johnson as this like 46, 47% three-point shooter for the rest of his career. Right now, he's inching closer and closer below 40%, which is fine. Even if he finished the season at like 38% from three, that would be a huge success. That means that Chip England has put in the work with him, and he's put in the work in the gym, and they figured something out a little bit here. But I'm not super worried about Keldon, and if anything, I'm encouraged by some of the other things I've seen. You know, he's finished a little bit better at the rim. He's getting to the free throw line a lot. Seven attempts against OKC, seven attempts against Washington, five attempts against the Chicago Bulls. So, you know, th there's some, some reasons to be concerned, but I think he'll get out of this slump. And I think he'll be fine for the rest of the season. I just think he's in a tough position where he's sort of playing out of position every night, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, it definitely does. I mean, we've mentioned it, man. Like, that they need to upgrade really at the three and the four spot, uh, particularly the four spot, but kind of the three, the four, you kind of need some versatility there, and the Spurs don't really have that. In terms of, like, his slump and everything like that, I think he's definitely regressing to what he really is. Uh, right now in the month of February, he shot 37.9%, and I think he could be a 36 37% three-point shooter. One thing that I am encouraged by, a little subtle thing, is um, throughout every month this season, he's actually improved as a free-throw shooter which I feel like is, is kind of showing his growth as a shooter in general. Like you mentioned, there is a little bit of correlation from, you know, free throw shooting and actual just shooting ability in general, especially from the from the collegiate standpoint. But I think in general, man, uh, Keldon Johnson, where he's headed right now, he just kind of regressed into what I think he really is right now at this point in his career. But with that said, I don't I don't think there's any really cause to be worried either, if that makes sense. I, I, one kind of sentiment I think we've echoed over and over in this podcast uh, specifically it's like expectation, right? If me and you expected Keldon Johnson to be, you know, Paul George, then of course there's something to worry about. But we just don't. Like that's just not this is not what's going on. So I think in general, man, I don't think there's much to worry about Keldon Johnson. And I don't know if you have anything else to add on this topic. I feel like we're kinda we're kinda saying the same thing here. I don't think there's anything to worry about, but at the same time, it, he kind of just is what he is, right? Yeah, and, and I think we've mentioned this in the past, but I really like Keldon. I'm not saying he's like a finished product by any means. I don't think he is. I think there's definitely some talent to scratch off the surface, and he can get a lot better at certain things. One thing that I have been encouraged by throughout the season is he's committed less offensive fouls. He's looked a little bit more in control or under control when he's driving, and he's making passes that it's not like anything special, 
but he is making more simple reads without committing those charges and you know that that lead to turnovers. So I'm encouraged by that. My my one question is, I guess, like on a on a really good team, a team that's competitive, right? Like a team that is competing for something meaningful, like a conference title or even getting to the NBA Finals. Is he the guy who takes the second most shots on the team for you? Is he your second leading scorer? Because I don't I don't know. And like I guess I'm not sure how to read into this season a hundred percent because I think the numbers are somewhat inflated by, I mean, respectfully, they have to give him the ball. There's really like no one else outside of DeJounte who they can give the ball to. He's got to be the de facto second option, just like DeJounte has sort of been like the de facto first option. But what worries me, I guess, is like, is is he playing like this because he's out of position and he's being asked to do more than he probably should? Or is he playing like this because this is who he is? I don't think it's because who he is. I also think the Spurs should probably look at... I mean, I love Doug McDermott. I think his shooting is the most dynamic. We talked about it. I mean, he's the most dynamic shooter yeah. on this roster. But, like, feasibly, you're not playing those two guys together at the three and four. Like, only one of those guys should really be on the court at, as a three. I think it should be Keldon, mostly because he's younger. He's got more potential. But what do you do with Doug at that point? So, I, I don't know. I, I'm kind of going on a little bit of a tangent. But that's the thing that worries me. I would want to keep Keldon if I had to keep, like... Five players on this roster. You know, it's got to be DeJounte, Keldon, uh, Devin, Primo, probably Jakob. But where does Keldon fit in in the long run? That, I guess that's my question. Not necessarily for you to answer, but he's going to have to answer that for us at a certain point. Yeah, no, I, I totally hear you 100%. And yeah, he's probably like your fourth option. or He's really just a rotational piece. Probably, he, could he be a starter? Sure, like on a, on a really good team. Uh, yeah, maybe at the three or four, but I think he lacks some versatility just overall in his game on, on both ends of the floor to really be that, that lock-in solid starter at the three. But with that said, man, I mean, he's not the only you know player that's going through a little bit of a struggle right now either. The Spurs in general, man, all year, it's like in every article I write for Pounding the Rock, I mentioned that if it's a close game, be sure to watch for this. So in 29 games that come down to what the NBA considers clutch time, the San Antonio Spurs are 9 and 20 in those games with a net rating of minus 14 during the stretch uh, during, you know, down the stretch of those ball games. In addition, as a team, San Antonio ranks third worst in EFG percentage, true shooting percentage as they seemingly cannot get things going when they need it most. So Noah, are you at all worried about this team's issues in the clutch? Do you think this is more of like a talent issue, a coaching issue, an experience issue? What is it? You know, what's what's really going on? Because that's the one thing the Spurs haven't been able to figure out all year. Yeah, and there's an excellent article on 538. It came out right during the All-Star break about how teams go about scoring when it gets into the clutch. And just so people understand, clutch is just defined by the NBA, like by the league. They define it as five minutes to go in a game separated by five points. That's it. That's what's counted as clutch minutes. So you can actually like fluctuate in and out of clutch. Like say you go ahead by seven. Okay, it's no longer clutch. But then you you make a three. Okay, well now you're back in the clutch. But anyways, I just wanted to get that off the table. But basically this article goes into how teams operate in the clutch and there's four categories, right? So the first category is isolators, teams that run a much higher volume of isolation plays than normal. Then there are post players, so teams that run more post-ups than they normally would in regulation. Uh, there is also pick-and-roll uh, devotees, which are teams that run more pick-and-roll. I mean, it, it sounds literally like what it is. And then the last one is teams that stray away from ramping up. So teams that just 
do what they've been doing the entire game. They don't worry about, you know, running a certain play. They just have been doing what they've been doing, you know, business as usual. And so if you had to guess, Dame, out of all those teams, one, which one do you think has the most success? And two, out of those categories, where do you think the Spurs land? Ooh, that's a good question, Noah. That's a really good question. Bro, I was not expecting that. Um, Let's see. So you said pick and roll. Um, I would say the Spurs probably land there. As far as teams that are that are good down the stretch, could it be the isolation? Are the isolation teams better in the str- down down in the clutch? That's my guess. I don't know. Oh man, I, I hate to tell you, you just went zero for two, but that's oh, all right. That's a hard okay, question. Okay, okay. That is that's totally I was fun. so. I was, <laughs> as you can tell, I got street ball mentality, man. I'm just trying to iso every play down the stretch. Yeah, but keep I going. get you. No, I, I was I was like surprised as well. So no, so the teams that have the most success are the teams that don't deviate from their normal game plan. The teams that just go about business as usual. The Spurs fit into the category called isolators. And it just so happens that isolators out of those four categories have the lowest percentage, winning percentage in the clutch. So I think it's really interesting, and I'm actually doing an article right now. I'm in the process of writing it. It'll probably be out sometime either you know Friday, Saturday, sometime this weekend. But what I thought was really, really interesting is for the Spurs – DeJounte Murray only has about 100, a little over 100 isolation possessions all season long. And DeJounte Murray has played a ton of minutes. DeJounte Murray has about 20 isolation isolation possessions in clutch time alone. And he's only played 96 minutes in the clutch. So they're asking him a lot of times to, hey, the ball's in your hands. Go get me a bucket. We need you right now. And we've talked about it in the past. DeJounte Murray is a talented scorer. You know, you don't average 20.3 points per game if you're not. You know, he had 29 points against the Sacramento Kings last night. But even against the Kings, he was 1-3 for the clutch, right? So that's not great. For the season, he's shooting 42.6% in the clutch. And you look at some of the other things. Like, for the season, DeJounte Murray is shooting about you know, 41.6% on isolation plays. In the clutch, that number plummets to 35%. And that's kind of how it goes for every other subset of play, whether it's cutting, whether it's transition, whether it's pick-and-roll ball handling, whether it's off-screens. And so the Spurs, I feel like they don't necessarily have, like, a coaching issue. I don't think it's a problem with Pop. They have a personnel issue. You know, DeJounte Murray's being asked to do, and he has been asked to do, too much all season long. And the thing that really stands out to me is it's not really so much a DeJounte problem. Obviously, they could upgrade. You know, they, they could use a better score, a go-to guy, a guy who you can give the ball and say, get me a bucket, and he's going to do it. You know, the Joel Embiid's, the Nikola Jokic, a John Morant, a DeMar DeRozan, even though, ironically, yeah. he is gone. Um, <laughs> the thing that stands out to me is it's not a, De, a De, DeJounte issue. It's an issue with the rest of the roster. You know, DeJounte Murray's assist to, a, to turnover ratio is way worse in the clutch than it is in the normal, you know, non-clutch minutes. But that's not because he's turning the ball over at this exorbitant rate or because he's not finding teammates. It's because his teammates are letting him down. Keldon Johnson, 8 of 30 from the field in the clutch. Lonnie Walker, 8 of 20. Derek White, who's no longer here, 7 of 17. Devin Vassell, 2 of 17. Doug McDermott, two of seven, Josh Primo, two of six. There's only a handful of guys, including Jakob Pertl, who's shooting 12 of 19, but that's not self-created. 
That's out of the pick and roll. Yeah. That's DeJounte Murray hitting him with a pocket pass. That's DeJounte Murray hitting him, you know, in full stride and transition or semi-transition. There's no one else who can create their own shot on this roster. And when you got rid of Derek White, you took that away. I know Lonnie Walker is averaging 21.3 points per game over his last seven games. We've talked about that. That's great. But Dame, only 32% of those buckets are unassisted. That means two-thirds of his shots are being created by his teammates. DeJounte Murray, 70% of his shots are created by himself. They're self-created. No one else on this roster can do that. And because he's being asked to do that, the Spurs are failing time and time and time again in the clutch. And it's not surprising. They're a young team. They're lacking a go-to scorer. And I think this is an issue that you have to solve in the offseason or through the draft because it's not something that's going to be resolved this year. They just don't have the personnel for it. Yeah, I agree with you 100%. And the thing, too, with DeJounte, especially in the clutch, is we've mentioned, too, like on that podcast with Matt Issa, how he doesn't really have that, like, just that on-ball gravity that really create, that he can, he can't really create like the elite creators can. Obviously, the numbers look nice, you know, 21 points, 20 points, blah, blah, blah. We know all the numbers. But in terms of, like, actually being able to create, especially down the stretch, I think that's when you can really start to tell who actually has that gravity, that, that really, that, that, you know, that, ability to bend the defense really in those moments that's when you can really kind of tell and like you mentioned some of it's DeJounte because he's just not there right but he also just he does not have the teammates for it either man there's very little self-creation on this roster to begin with down the stretch it only gets like everyone in every sport knows down the stretch of games the game gets tighter every you know in any sport you can imagine and so it only it doesn't you know help him at all when you don't really have guys that can create whatsoever like they put the ball on the floor. It's very simple. You know, we talked about it with Kelton Johnson. Just put the ball on the floor. A little bit of tunnel vision. Doesn't really see the floor very well. Lonnie Walker. Sometimes, sometimes you can create, a, you know, a, a nice feed to someone, but it's not really consistent, right? So all you really have is Dejounte down the stretch. And so I think I agree with you, man. Like, if they had better personnel, if they had that kind of go-to store, uh, go-to score, or just someone that can really create for not only themselves but for others, I think it'd be a little bit different, man. I mean, how many times have we said? Man, DeJounte's probably not that 1A player, but potentially as that 1B, if you had someone that was just a little bit better than him in uh, significant areas that he's just not there right now, oh man, who knows how much different this team would be, right? So I think right now where DeJounte's at and this team in general in the clutch, it, it does come down to personnel more so than, I, of course, coaching. I, you will never catch me talking about the coaching <laughs> of Greg Popovich needs to be changed. It could be a little bit of inexperience, too. I mean, I don't think Devin Vassell is going to shoot t- 2 of 17 again next year in the clutch. But I just think in general, man, it just comes down to a personnel issue. They have a they have a lot of you know very specific holes that down the stretch of games when you need a bucket, they just don't have that right now. And um, I feel like I'm just repeating myself of what I've said a 100 times on so many shows and articles. So, yeah, man, I think that's kind of where the Spurs stand in, in, in clutch time, man. And, and I think it's really interesting because, as I mentioned, the teams that just go about business as usual, they run their normal sets. They're not focused on getting more pick-and-roll possessions. They're not focused on getting more ISO or post-up possessions. Like, those teams are really successful, and every single one of those teams, with the exception of the Thunder and the Rockets, which is it's strange because they're really bad, but also, <laughs> like, if you're doing what you've been doing the whole game and you're really bad, like, you're obviously you're going to still be bad. Matter. But, like, the teams <laughs> that fall into that category – the Bucks, the Jazz, the Heat, the Suns, the Nets. You know, like th- those are teams that have a shot at winning a title, right? And I'm not saying that like maybe they they're able to run that because of their personnel. You know, because I think a lot of people think of it like, okay, you know, 
Chris Paul gets the ball down the stretch of the game, and he's going to ISO on you, or, or, or Devin Booker's going to ISO on you, but the numbers don't say that. You know, the numbers say that they're going to run as many pick and rolls as they usually do. They're going to, you know, try to find mismatches out of the pick and roll with Chris Paul, or they're going to try to hit Devin Booker on the wing because he's one of the best off-ball movers as far as, like, NBA stars go. He's one of the best off-ball stars in the league. So I don't know how the Spurs necessarily fix that, but I think if you want to mitigate it a little bit this year, it's going to be hard to do so when your pass rate goes down in the clutch, when your assist rate goes down in the clutch, you're running more ISOs in the clutch. Like, that's that's not your bread and butter. You know, the Spurs' offense has been predicated on ball movement, on player movement, on unselfish passing, and on guys playing within themselves. And I think when you ask DeJounte to do more than he's capable of doing, especially given the supporting cast, not that it's bad, but it's just not ideal, this is what you're going to get. So hopefully they figure it out this offseason. Maybe they address it through the draft. Like I mentioned, I know that fans aren't happy with this sometimes, but you know if the Spurs keep losing these close games, one, that's excellent experience. You play a lot of close games, that's how you really build resolve and character. You learn lessons there, right? But if you lose them, you're also getting a better pick most likely. And so what is the best thing you could possibly do other than get your guys experience in the clutch that they're going to need eventually when they get to a time when they can actually win in the clutch and then maybe get them some help in a draft. Like I think that's the best case scenario is you play a lot of close games, you lose a lot of close games, but you're learning from that and you get a, you know, maybe a S tier player in the draft if you're lucky. So I'm not rooting for the Spurs to lose necessarily, but I think on the track that they're on, I wouldn't be disappointed if I'm a fan. If anything, I'd be really excited just to be witnessing this growth and for the potential to add another really, really nice, talented piece to this roster. And they have three picks. Who knows? Maybe they package it up. But, you know, clutch time is going to be a problem. But, you know, Dame, I'll, I'll let you take us into the next topic because I'm sure Spurs fans are tired of hearing <laughs> about the clutch. Yeah, no, you actually really segued it perfectly because speaking of help, right now the San Antonio Spurs have very little to offer outside of Yaka Pirtle at center. Uh, their latest additions in, in both Jock Lindale and Zach Collins both haven't been able to produce in their roles consistently throughout this season. And right now, the Spurs really shouldn't be married to either player uh, going forward, as you know, their backup big man. So where do you stand on this entire kind of Jock Landale, Zach uh, Collins battle for the backup five spot? And what do you think the Spurs should do going forward when Jakob exits ball games? Because I don't think anyone's really solidified themselves as quote-unquote the guy at that spot. Yeah, that's really tough. I mean, Zach Collins came out the very first game that he played for the Spurs. It was against Houston. 10 points, 7 rebounds, 3 assists, 2 blocks. Like, he looked like he was ready to come back after not playing basketball for, you know, almost two years. And since that time, it just really hasn't looked the same, which is fine. You know, like, maybe it was the adrenaline that was really pumping through his veins, and that got him playing well, and maybe he was a little bit lucky, and he had some confidence, and who knows. But you look at his last five games, you know, 3.8 points per game, 2.8 turnovers per game, He's shooting 43% from the field. He's playing nearly 16 minutes per game. He even got a start in that one game when Jakob was out. When Even though, you know, Pop said, we're not going to play him in back-to-backs. And then literally 24 hours later, you know, he's starting in a back-to-back. So the Spurs invested about $7 million, give or take, per year for the next three years. Now, not all of that is guaranteed. This is a pretty good contract, all things considered. But I feel like it's, I mean, maybe this is unfair. But you're investing money into this guy, whereas, like, Jock Landale is a league minimum contract. You could cut him tomorrow and you wouldn't have to worry about it. I think that's fine. Like, the Spurs respectfully aren't really going to be going anywhere this season. 
So if you want to keep investing minutes into a guy who you paid you know, a, a pretty good amount of money to this summer, then do it. I'm fine with that. I just, if he's struggling and you really want to win, then, you know, maybe give Jock Landell a chance, but he comes with his own drawbacks. I like him a lot. I think he brings something to the table, but again, he's not a perfect player. And I think in the, in, in the grand scheme of things, he's not as versatile as Zach Collins, especially once this guy gets healthy. Yeah. I think for me, the interesting thing about Zach Collins is we mentioned when, you know, he first started, when he first started the comeback, I was like, I really want to see what kind of player he is right now and I don't think right now Noah I, uh, from my perspective I don't really know I, I, I really don't know <laughs> what what Zach Collins is at this point um, which is expected right he hasn't played hoops in a long time right a lot of injuries but even like a guy like Jock Lindell he's had some really like impressive moments like even if you just read the box score blankly and saw you know he was 5-11 from the field you know 14 points three rebounds two assists you'd be like oh for a backup big that's you know that's fine but then you watch the game, and he has you know a couple turnovers late that were pretty costly. He had five fouls, and I just think in general we don't know what the Spurs have right now, and not in the good sense, not in the sense of where you're like, man, this player could be X, Y, and Z. You never know. It's kind of like it's trending towards man, they might not have any long-term answer at the backup five spot. You know what I mean? So I just think in general where the Spurs are standing there is they're gonna need to figure that out. Obviously, if they're having a top three pick, I don't think they're gonna. <laughs> I don't think that dude's gonna be the backup big next year if they, you know, get Chet or whatever. But in the same token, it's definitely some, a position they need to address. And if Zach Collins isn't that guy, like you mentioned, the contract isn't too bad. They can cut him. I know there's no guaranteed money in year three. I'm sure in year two there's very little. Uh, Jock Landell as well. So I think the Spurs are in a good spot in terms of like cap flexibility to you know potentially find that guy. But right now, Noah, I'm I'm not very encouraged. You know, by either guy, if I'm being honest. Yeah, and I think I'm fine to be patient with Zach Collins. I know that, like, one, he wasn't, like, a world beater before he got injured. And, like, he had three surgeries to repair the same injury. And, you know, two of them were botched surgeries. So that's not on him. You know, it's not on him that he was out that long. But even that season before he sustained that injury where he played 11 games, I think eight of them were in the bubble, three of them were very early in the season. He had a pretty serious shoulder injury that required surgery. He missed pretty much all the year, and then he got hurt in the bubble, and they shut him down for the rest of the bubble. And so I'm not really worried about him health-wise necessarily because everything that the Spurs have been saying, everything that he has indicated says that, you know, I'm fine. You know, I physically I feel fine. I'm just getting back up to speed. But with, with Zach Collins, I guess I've always been a little bit hesitant to say that this guy's going to come in and do X, Y, Z. Because I know a lot of Spurs fans and, and even some members of the media, they were ready to say, you know, this is a guy who's going to come in. He's going to protect the rim. He's going to be able to be switchable on the perimeter. Like he looked like a switchable guy uh, when he was in Portland. And then he's also going to be able to shoot the three ball because he shot, you know, I think 37% over an eight game or 11 game sample size during that, you know, lock, not lockout, but the uh, like lockdown season, if you will, with the bubble. And to me, it's just like that was such a small sample size that even before he got injured, even before we got that sample size, even the season before, we didn't really know what Zach Collins was. Like he was sort of just this like raw guy, you know, a lot of emotion, a lot of energy, you know, super hot motor. But like we didn't know if he could actually shoot the three. You know, it was more flashes of being able to switch on the perimeter and stay in front of smaller players. And so for me, I'm willing to be patient. You know, like he is very young still. I think he's 23 or 24. So it's not like he's ancient by any means. But 
I don't want to say that he's going to be, you know, something special or that he's definitely the backup of the future because I just I haven't seen anything to indicate that. The only real consistent production I have seen from Zach Collins has been his passing and even inside of the passing, which he's actually been a, really good at finding little shovel passes when he gets stuck in the post, but he's also turned the ball over a lot. So I just want to be patient with him before I say he's going to do anything or be anything. And I think that's a, probably a safe approach, but it's the one that I want to take with Zach. Yeah, and that's a. I think that's a good spot to end on too because it's kind of like we don't we don't really know right now. No, like we're we're not in a spot to really like Zach's only played nine games, you know. So we're, you know we can't say oh he's terrible or oh he's great. You know, Jock Lindell, he's he, even him like he's had a couple of stretches where he plays you know two three games you know eight games in a row whatever, and then recently you know he did not play inactive DMP. So you, we don't really know right now, but I think we're gonna end on this note. Spurs Twitter's favorite player. All the Spurs fans are loving him. Uh, I think there's an argument that DeJounte Murray had the best month of his career to the eye. And in terms of various statistics in February, uh, he averaged 23.8 points, 10.8 assists, 7.6 boards, 2.0 steals. Uh, He shot 51.8% from the floor, 32% from deep, 86% from the line. It seems like Murray is, you know, ascending even higher than we anticipated after his all-star selection. So, Noah, in your own words, do you think this was a tone-setting month for DeJounte? And could this be the start of him potentially blossoming into that 1B kind of centerpiece that you need going forward? Yeah, I think there's definitely a case to be made for that. It's interesting because I know you said, like, February was his most impressive month. I know he was named an All-Star. I think that gave him a lot of momentum, a lot of motivation, a lot of confidence, like, we saw him go, and we haven't talked about the All-Star game, and we won't talk about that too much, but, you know, he was throwing it off the backboard to himself for a dunk. You know, he went between the legs. He had a, a, a few mid-range Jays in there, like, of course he would do in an All-Star <laughs> game. But, you know, I, I like what I saw from DeJounte in February. But if I can, I would actually make an argument that his January was a lot more impressive. You know, in January, he was nominated for his first ever Western Conference Player of the Month award. He didn't win. But I thought it was more impressive, and I'll, and I'll tell you why, and you, you can give me a rebuttal in just a minute. But looking at February, you know, they played the shorthanded Golden State Warriors, and he had a really good game against them. But they also were missing four starters. So, you know, that it is what it is. You can only play who's in front of you, but they were missing four starters. Then he comes out, dominates the Houston Rockets, one of the worst teams in the league. Then he lays an egg, uh, an egg against the Cleveland Cavaliers. Then he dominates the Atlanta Hawks, who are, by the way, a bottom five defense in the league. Then he dominates the New Orleans Pelicans, who are also a bottom five defense in the league. He dominated against the Oak, against the Washington Wizards, who are a bottom 10 defense in the league. And then he really struggled against OKC and Chicago, two actually pretty good defenses. Granted, Chicago was missing their two best defenders and Lonzo Ball and Alex Caruso. So, you know, he kind of just didn't show up for that game. And then the last game against Memphis, you know, it's pretty numbers, 21, 3 and 8, three steals and a block. But he got outplayed by John Morant, 8 of 20 from the floor, 1 of 4 from 3. I mean, I honestly, if I had to tell you, I really wasn't that impressed. I mean, this was a really easy schedule for him. It really was. I mean, I'm not I'm not saying that it wasn't impressive. It definitely was. And kudos to him for putting up the numbers. But if I had to pick a month, it's got to be January. Yeah, I think for me where I where I defer where I, I definitely see your point I think we do this a lot in sports just in general not you but just in general we do this is whenever a player does really really well and it's against kind of like an inferior opponent or kind of like uh you know you don't want to put too much stock in that and for me I agree with that the one thing that really sticks out to me 
It's just how he's able to really take advantage of these games night in, night out, no matter who it is, especially against the inferior opponents. He's really just doing work. And I think that's something that you can really kind of build off of. When I when I said tone setting, I think that those kind of performances can, you know, set you on a trajectory to be that kind of player. Because confidence, you know, mental, everything about basketball is, is probably, what, 80, 90% mental, do you think, Noah? Like, there's just so much into this game that, that you know, is, is more than just putting the orange thing in the orange thing. And I think for DeJounte to have a month like this, to do very, very well, to have that all-star selection, I think in totality, when you take the all-star uh, portion into it and just his individual play, I think you can say it's probably his quote-unquote best month of his career. But I think he's also had you know, very impressive games against even better opponents as well. So I'm kind of, I kind of lean towards it, it being his best month of his career. But I can definitely see your point because you would like to, that to be coming against teams that are better, that are, you know, against, you know, better, better opponents, you know, better matchups, just everything like that. So I'm kind of, on, I'm kind of like in the middle a little bit. At first, when we first did this topic, I was kind of like, DeJounte, this is the best month of his career. But now after sleeping on it, looking over a little bit, I'm kind of coming uh, close to the middle on it. And, and yeah, I mean, like, that's not to say he didn't have, he had an incredible February. He should definitely be nominated for Western Conference Player of the Month. I don't know what the Spurs record was over that time. I, I imagine it's probably something like five and five. They probably went 500, but it was a phenomenal month. And again, like you can only play who's in front of you, but I got to take January. Dame, you know, I, I explained to you here that, you know, February, when they played good teams, he just didn't shoot the ball well. You know, he, he didn't really rise to, to the occasion against those teams. But in January, he played a fully healthy Boston team, dominated them, hit a game winner over them. Philadelphia, he was the only reason they were in that game. That's a really good team. Brooklyn, He's the only reason that they're in that game. That was when they still had James Harden, when they still had uh, you know a healthy Kevin Durant. Then he went out and he dominated against the New York Knicks, who you know they're a playoff team last year. They're not as good this year. He dominated the, the Rockets. He dominated the Cleveland Cavaliers. He dominated the playoff-bound Clippers. He dominated against the Phoenix Suns. He was pretty good against OKC. Could have been better, but then he comes back out. Brooklyn, Philadelphia, Houston, Memphis, Chicago. Outside of Houston... All of those teams could make noise in the playoffs, and he dominated against every single one of them. So when I'm looking at you know which month was better, I'm going to take the month in which he played better competition and he put up comparable numbers. And again, that's not to say that February was not impressive; it absolutely was. Like if you had to give him you know a Western Conference Player of the Month nomination this month, absolutely do it. He deserves it. But I think he's closer to winning it in January than he is in February, just based on the competition, the record, and then. Honestly, like, I, I don't know if there's anything else to say about that. I mean, I feel yeah. like I made a good argument. You yeah, don't have no, to agree is. with me. You don't have to agree with me. But I just, I feel really strongly about his January because, you know, I, I could look back and maybe, you know, you, you, recency bias has me saying, well, you know, he didn't play such good teams. And look at what he did in January. Like, you know, we forget things like that. You know, like, yeah, it, it's the case could be like, oh, maybe he really wasn't that good in January. But just looking at the numbers in the competition, I gotta go with January. I probably will die on this hill too. <laughs> yeah, no, I think I think in general, I think in general too. Like you know, every every number from outside of three point percentage from December, every number was up in field goal percentage, free throw, true shooting. You know that good stuff as well. So I think that's kind of what really started it. Was like when you look from just a raw numbers perspective. Of course, like I'm watching the games too, but from a raw numbers perspective, you kind of see that that trajectory. That again, tone setting kind of thing that's starting here. And that's what at first made me lean that way because 
not only was the play really impressive, the numbers were impressive, but I also can see the other side of the argument where, hey, he's not playing. He's number one when he is playing these great teams. He's not having the best day against them. But for two, he's you know I I, I can't knock a player. I'm not saying you are, but I can't knock a player for taking advantage of matchups of the matchup that he has in front of him. You know what I mean? If Patrick Mahomes is going to throw 500 yards against the Washington defense and the Eagles, I'm not going to say Patrick Mahomes, he's not that good. You know what I mean? So that's why I'm kind of like, absolutely. I'm kind absolutely. of I'm kinda like, I'm, that's why I said at first I was on, you know, I was really on that side. Like, oh, I think it is. I think it is. But now I'm trending much more to the middle. Now I'm on that tone setting far going to the middle. I think the, <laughs> a, a good middle ground for us here is just to say he's had two really good months, right? 24 games between January, February, and the beginning of March. You know, they missed some games because of the All-Star break, so we can throw those in there. 23.5 points per game, 8.4 rebounds per game, 10.1 assists per game, just under three turnovers per game, and he's playing 35 minutes per game. Like, he's on some Tom Thibodeau workload right now. He really is. Yeah. Like he's Even, like, in February, I think he played, like, 37 minutes per game in February, so... You know, this guy is carrying an unprecedented load. Can he get to that next step? Maybe. You know, the three-point shooting really hasn't been there. I know he knocked down two really big threes the other night against Sacramento, but, you know, for the season, he's kind of where he was a year ago, just slightly more volume. Again, the rest of the league has dipped as far as three-point percentage goes, so maybe we want to read into that and say he has made more improvement than the percentages maybe indicate. But... I don't know. I mean, I'm just excited to say DeJounte Murray is an NBA all-star. I said that he would get close to that during my preseason prediction. And guess what? Like, he blew that out of the water. He absolutely was an NBA all-star. So I can eat crow on that. And I hope that I can eat crow later and say, hey, you know, DeJounte Murray actually is a superstar or whatever in two years. Nothing would make me more happy than to say, you know, the San Antonio Spurs have a homegrown all-star and they did it with the 29th overall pick with a guy who was overlooked because of People wanted to say or organizations wanted to say, oh, you know, this guy is gang affiliated or he has character issues, which we've seen. That isn't true. You know, you're not you're not where you come from necessarily. Right. Just because you come from a specific background does not mean you cannot get out of there through hard work. And he has. He's put in the work. He's put in the hours in the gym. He's improved little by little every single season, adding a mid-range jumper, adding a floater, getting better at finishing at the rim, cutting down on turnovers, becoming a better passer, adding the pocket pass to his repertoire. So. I'm so happy with DeJounte Murray. I don't want that to get lost in the mix. Just because I don't necessarily think he's going to be a superstar doesn't mean that I'm not incredibly happy with the progress he's made. And that, honestly, I'm just proud of the Spurs developmental program for helping so many of these guys come along. So I think that's a good place to leave it for DeJounte Murray. Unless you have another thing that you want to say about him. No, man. I think think you ended it perfectly, man. That was was beautiful, man. That was great. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, sir. I I think this is probably a good place to start wrapping up the podcast. So, as always, I'd love to know where they can find you on social media. So go ahead and let fans know where they can find you on Twitter, where they can find your words on basketball, on football, whatever the case may be. And just, you know, this is your time to shine, man. So go for it. Yeah, y'all can go ahead and follow me on Twitter. That's at D-A Bartonic, D-A-B-A-R-T-O-N-E-K. I cover Washington football. I cover the Spurs. I cover... Texas State sports. I got the pod with Noah. I got my own football. I got a whole lot of, <laughs> whole lot of, whole lot of, you know. So uh, just holler at me. I'm always down for dialogue, whatever y'all want to do. And uh, no, it's always fun hopping on, bro. Like I said, it's been two weeks, felt like two years, brother. So it was nice chatting with you again, man. 
Of course, man. And honestly, I'm not going to lie. Like for the for the listeners who are tuning into this podcast, it's just like playing a sport almost. Like if you take two weeks off, you're going to be a little bit rusty. So I appreciate y'all hanging around, even though there were some slip ups <laughs> for me here and there. But again, thank you so much, Dane, for joining me. And thank you to everybody who tuned into this edition of Alamo City Limits. For those of you listening at home, make sure to subscribe and leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We've got a fantastic staff of writers over at Pounding the Rock who do a wonderful job of keeping everybody up to date with their favorite team. So check our stuff out. But until next time, Spurs fans, take care.